Around noon today, Donald Trump left his golf estate in Bedminster, New Jersey. He got on his Trump plane at Newark International Airport and he flew back to Washington, D.C. And when Trump arrived there today, he wasn't just showing up for court. He was returning to the scene of the alleged crime. The federal courthouse where Trump was arraigned today sits near both the Ellipse, which is where Trump riled up the crowds on January 6th, and the Capitol Plaza, where those same rioters stormed the barricades and overtook police and tried to stop the peaceful transition of power. The courtroom that Trump was in today is the very same room where numerous January 6th cases have been heard. The judge overseeing Trump's arraignment has also overseen the cases of people including Dominic Box, a QAnon activist who live-streamed the storming of the Capitol, and Jared Wise, a former FBI agent who was charged with assaulting a police officer on January 6th. So this was all very much a trip down memory lane for Mr. Trump. Now, there were no courtroom cameras today, but thanks to courtroom sketch artist Bill Hennessy, we know what it looked like when a former president of the United States appeared in court to be formally and federally charged for trying to subvert American democracy. There were more than 110 people in the courtroom to hear this arraignment, including several of the federal judges who have been presiding over other January 6th cases. Judges who showed up today in plain clothes as spectators for Trump's arraignment. The judge presiding over today's arraignment was U.S. Magistrate Judge Moxila Upadia. She read the charges against Trump aloud in court, and Mr. Trump pleaded not guilty to all four felony charges. And then the judge gave Mr. Trump a warning. Quote, if you fail to comply with any of your conditions of release, a warrant may be issued for your arrest. Your conditions of release may be revoked and you may be held pending trial in this case. She continued, your most important condition of release, sir is that you not commit a state, federal, or local crime while on release. I want to remind you that it is a crime to try to influence a juror or to threaten or attempt to bribe a witness or any other person who may have information about your case or to retaliate against anyone for providing information about your case to the prosecution or to otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. There has been so much discussion about whether Trump will face jail time if he is found guilty in this case. But until today, until the judge said that, no one had really considered the possibility that Trump could face jail time during this case. Mr. Trump is a man with a storied history of flagrant rule breaking, but he is now bound by the rules of the court for the duration of this trial. And if he violates those rules, the prosecution can move to revoke the conditions of his release. They could argue that Trump should be behind bars before this trial is even finished. On that note, one of the looming questions about this entire process has been, when will this trial take place? Will there be a trial before the election? Will it happen before the Republican Party chooses its presidential nominee? Well, today we learned that we will get an answer to that very question in less than a month. The judge scheduled Trump's next hearing for August 28th, which is a little over three weeks from today where the date for Trump's actual trial, the United States versus Donald John Trump, is expected to be set. I want to turn now to MSNBC's chief legal analyst and horse host of The Beat, Ari Melber, and NBC News senior legal correspondent, Laura Jarrett. Thank you both for being here tonight. Um, Laura, let me just first get your sense of what, if anything, is signaled 
by the setting of this August 28th mm. date. And that the judge today said the trial judge is going to actually decide on the trial date on August 28th. Uh, so a couple of things. The magistrate judge made it clear she had actually talked to Judge Chutkin, mm-hmm. the one who's the trial judge, who's actually going to be running this entire show. She made it clear, we've already chatted. We've already figured this all out. So she came ready with dates so that they couldn't just say, okay, we'll see you later. Like lots of times you have this sort of first appearance, but you don't actually get a next date until later on. Right. And today everyone was like, nope, we're ready to go for later in August. That's number one. Number two, she made it clear, we're going to actually set a trial date at that next date yeah. in August on August, August 28th. 28th. So at that date, we will actually know at least for now when the trial date will be. Doesn't mean that it won't get pushed. Doesn't mean that they won't try to delay. Doesn't mean things can't come up. But it's significant because it just shows where Judge Chutkin's head is at. Mm-hmm. Where her head is at is that I am not going to allow this thing to be derailed. It doesn't mean, again, that there won't be attempts, but it, it, I think it signals at least where her expectations are. It seems to be, Ari, like a tacit rebuke to the floated like strategy of the Trump legal team, which is, we're going to try and delay this until Trump is president, or at least in a position of power where he can actually tinker with the wheels of justice. Yeah, I mean, they kind of are down in the count, but they still want to run out the clock, which is unusual. But here, the idea was the clock would reset in November, they think, if they take control of the Justice Department. And that's different of course, than other defendants who aren't running for president. Um, I don't know how well you know your way around a Passover Seder. Pretty well, actually. I don't know. I call it Pesach, but, you know. So we ask this question through the years. Why is this night different than Than any other night? And it's an organizing question, and you could use it in any space. Why was this arraignment different today, right? We've heard about other arraignments. We've heard about many problems. I thought you and your introduction really reminded viewers of the scale and scope of this, as well as some of the questions that went down in the arraignment. And the reason this is different, we discussed this a little bit for viewers who may have caught up during the day. You yeah. and I were sitting there covering it in real time. But he is on trial, a trial that will be set soon in, in the date for it, for overthrowing the government mm-hmm. that he was in custody of today. This is different because of that reason. Second... It's the only time he's been indicted for conduct as president. Mm. So those other uh, cases, while perhaps important, are actually not about what he did in office. They're yeah. about in classified docs, obviously what he did after office, running and trying to abuse powers he no longer had, allegedly, uh, and New York business. Third, and most importantly, and I think it's the premise of your entire opening tonight, this is the big one, and everybody knows it. Yeah. He's not trying to run out the clock in New York the same way. I mean, they, they did some shenanigans, but yeah. there's a world where he's convicted in New York, Alex, and he's not convi- uh, sent to jail or prison if it were a longer sentence. But, and so he tells his supporters it wasn't that big a deal. It's kind of like a slap on the wrist, and life really does go on in a way. I'm not re- minimizing that. But functionally, this is different. He could stand trial before the general election. He could be convicted. He's legally presumed innocent tonight. But if convicted, that appeal could go to D.C. Circuit, which is a very serious uh, court. It's considered in a way kind of the second only the Supreme Court uh, compared to all the appeals courts. They could give a serious kind of what we might call nonpartisan ruling upholding the conviction. And then the Supreme Court has to decide with all of the problems they have, do they really want to come in and overturn something or do they leave it? And by the way, I just want to be clear with viewers, if they get that conviction and they leave it, meaning they don't take the case, 
He goes to prison that week. You are getting, you're the already, election. the vision of the orange jumpsuit, John Roberts getting involved. I'm not, you know. I just, just, just let's. We're I, not and there I, yet. We're, we're not, not there yet. We are not there yet. I mean, it's, Although, this is orange-ish, but not a jumpsuit. Not, de- decidedly not. Decidedly not. not from As neither an of officer these of the court, <laughs> I would just like to object. Do you want to okay? overrule? <laughs> you know, yes. but, I, but no, but I'm not saying that will happen. What I'm saying is that whether you call that a 1% or a 49%, the lawyers oh, in court the today, of the this. defendant, yeah. everyone felt so that. Everyone understands the gravity of this one. This was the one everybody would so, was sort of waiting for it. Because for a while, I mean, we're now at a point where he's being arraigned. For a while, it was not even clear he was actually going to be charged in this case. It is so significant to even yeah. be at this point. Because for so long, it was like, well, is it just going to be Julia or, or even or this East year? Minute? That there would exactly. be movement yeah. in it this calendar It was year. not even clear that he was the target, much less that we would be at a point where we're now talking about The other thing that I think makes this different is the Mar-a-Lago indictment was full of new information. And certainly there are sort of breadcrumbs of new information in this January 6th. But there's a lot that's not even here. For sure. But a lot of it we do know because of the House uh, in the House investigation yeah. into January 6th. And I wonder how that reality dovetails with the sort of line of argument from the Trump campaign right now in court today that this discovery process is going to be a beast. They're already setting the stage for trying to push this off as long as possible. The reality is, of course, there's going to be new information. But a lot of the stuff has already been litigated mm-hmm. in court. There's already been rulings on privilege, both executive and attorney-client. Sure. And I just wonder, I mean, whether you are optimistic about Trump's defense trying to claim this is all terra incognito. We're going to need months and months and months. This is where the judge is going to have a huge role to play. She's going to be the gatekeeper in deciding which motions are legit, which things are not. I will say it's just interesting to me to note which things are not in that indictment which were in the January 6th report. And there are a couple sort of big ones that were not in that indictment, which makes me think that there is more to this. Either they're working on deals and trying to figure out who's going to cooperate or who wasn't. It's unclear there. Um, But it's just worth noting, there were times where his attorneys were told specifically, this plan is illegal. It's not legally sound. That's nowhere in the indictment. Why isn't it there? There's just interesting little things like that, I I think, to know. And so to the extent that there's more there, sure, they're going to have an argument about discovery, but that the judge is going to be deciding whether that's okay. Or and she, as, as in the words of Glenn Kirshner, these judges have come to play. I mean, the fact that they're like, we're going to set the trial date in three weeks is indicative of people who are not wasting time. Can we talk about lawyers for one moment? Because mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed the reporting that Evan Corcoran was in the courtroom today, apparently still affiliated somehow with Donald Trump and his defense team. Evan Corcoran, for people who have forgotten, is sort of almost like a star witness in the Mar-a-Lago case from which he had to recuse himself. Did you, do you think it's odd that Trump is keeping Evan Corcoran in, in, in the mix, as it were, given how— Wouldn't you want to? Wouldn't you want to keep him but in the fold? A, I get. I mean, I don't defending you in a case, but it's not clear that he was acting as defense counsel. He's not sitting at defense counsel table, but he's there as sort of a quasi supporter in the same way Boris Epstein is sort of a quasi supporter, sure. quasi legal. So you think this is part of keep your friends close, keep your lawyers closer, even if they're star witnesses? And wouldn't uh, you want to? I um, think defendant Trump, and that's what he was today. Defendant Trump is playing any angle he can, even people who have obviously given up negative information about him. He's still hoping to keep him closer rather than further. And that goes to a theme in all this. You wisely mentioned that the predicate under all of this was the January 6th committee. Well, they were using 
the Trump aides, sometimes lawyers, as witnesses. Jack Smith clearly has that and then some. And, and I am reminded again, we've discussed it, none other than 21 Savage, <laughs> who says, gang versus the world, it was always us. Then you went and wrote a statement that really messed me up. Contemporaneous notes. Contemporaneous, contemporaneous notes. Mr. Corcoran was gang versus the world. Literally, the whole world and the federal government might be against you. And he was supposed to ride or die for Trump, except he didn't. Because Trump allegedly did things so bad, so obviously heinous against counsel that he felt a duty, even as a Trump lawyer, mm. to start keeping notes. And he went in the grand jury and they're using that. So, yeah, he's in court today trying to tell his one you know, once on the same team gang friend, hey, we're still good, but they're not good. We know they're not good because of the cooperation. And you have other individuals where we don't have the full picture. I said on air today, we don't yet know exactly what Mr. Meadows is doing, but we do know that he yep. provided information. We do know that in the final pages of this indictment, which was the subject of today's arraignment, you have someone in the room saying what Trump said, welcoming the violence late in that day. Yes. Now, you don't put that in an indictment unless you have it dead to rights, provable in court. And Jack Smith is by the book. So I would expect that, that on that small list, there are people who, like Mr. Corcoran, did what so disappointed 21, which is wrote a statement against the, the defense. Well, we know that Mike Pence, the, his vice president, kept contemporaneous notes. We asked Zoe Lofgren, member of the January yeah. 6th committee, did the committee know that Mike Pence had notes? And she said, we did not. Because I mean, so many of them didn't cooperate exactly. with the January 6th committee, but when subpoenaed by the Justice Department, by the grand jury, and then ordered to by the D.C. Circuit, they couldn't turn it down. Can I ask one quick question? Just because the judge was so clear about violating the yeah. sort of uh, bail conditions, if you, if you try and pressure witnesses, if you try and tamper with this trial in any way, Mr. Trump, that could change the conditions on which you are, under which you're being released. I mean— she sounded really serious in that, Laura. And we know that Trump has it's an order. not a master of self-restraint in terms of this arena. Do you think that's a real threat for him? Uh, I think that it will depend on how much uh, rope the Justice Department gives him. It's going to be up to the Justice Department to enforce that type of order and to bring violations or alleged violations to her attention. And so I think it will be a query to see how far they want to let him go on some of this stuff. So far, it's interesting. Today, they were very clear. Do not contact witnesses about this case. Last time around, they didn't bring it up. The judge did. Yeah. This time around, they affirmatively brought it up. Well, we'll see, I guess. Laura Jarrett, thank you for making time for me Anytime. tonight in Anytime. the fetching orange. Uh, Ari, please stay around for just a little. You got it. Okay, so there is a lot to unpack this evening, and we are going to get some insight as to what may be going on in Trump world this evening when I speak with Tim Parlatore, a lawyer who was, until recently, a defense attorney for Donald Trump. That is next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. 
Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Okay, so the next time that Jack Smith and Donald Trump's legal teams are due back in court in the 2020 election case is at the end of this month, August 28th, 10 a.m. And at that hearing, maybe the most important decision in this trial will be made. When will the trial take place and how long will it take? Now, both sides have seven days from today to basically tell the court when they think the trial should take place and how long they think they might need to make their case. We know Jack Smith's team wants a speedy trial, but as far as Trump's defense team, here was a preview of its stance on Fox News this evening. Today in court, which was a very terribly sad day, they're attacking other parts of the Constitution because they want to take President Trump to trial in a few months. They want to deny him his Sixth Amendment rights to counsel to give me and my co-counsel, Todd Blanche, an opportunity to prepare. They want to deny President Trump his due process rights to look at documents, to get witnesses, to use our subpoena power. They want to deny all of him those rights in a rush to judgment for one political purpose, and that's to uphold the Biden administration. Why the bums rush on this case? Do they feel that there's a problem in the other cases that are being orchestrated and they need to bring this case to trial in a couple of months in this venue? What does that tell you? What does that tell me? It tells me that Team Trump is shooting for a significant delay. Joining me now is Tim Parlatori, a former lawyer for Donald Trump. Mr. Parlatori, thanks so much for being here tonight. Um, let me just first get your thoughts. I mean, how much stock would you put? I mean, how optimistic, I should say, are you that the judge in this case is going to be receptive to the argument that Trump's, Trump's legal team is making here, that it's a denial of due process if there is a speedy trial? Well, I... I think that a lot of what he said there was more, um, you know, designed for the viewing public, not necessarily for the judge. You know, really, when you look at how federal criminal cases are scheduled, you know, the idea that it's going to be a couple of months is just not practical. You know, that in order for this case to go that quickly, essentially the defense would have to waive motions. You know, you'd have to, you know, waive certain defenses. And there's a lot of significant issues in this case. You know, we had litigated some pretty significant issues in the grand jury phase uh, related to privilege, executive privilege, things like that. And a lot of those will have to be revisited here. Uh, there's a lot of discovery that they're going to go through. The discovery in this case, I think, is going to be far greater than that, which is in the Mar-a-Lago case, obviously, you know, without classification issues. And so the idea that this thing would go to trial in under 15 months, you know, setting aside any election is just not practical from a standpoint of how federal criminal cases are tried. Do you? That's interesting because there's been a lot of attempted tea leaf reading about when um, Judge Chutnik might actually schedule this. You're saying reasonably is 15 months. 
Would you be, I mean, how surprised would you be if it was considerably earlier than that? And, and by the way, what avenues of appeals exist if the judge does decide to do this, let's say within this calendar year? I mean, does, does the Trump team have any recourse if that ends up being the case? You know, the, the ability to go to the appellate court um, in the middle of a case is pretty limited. Uh, but, you know, really, all they have to do is file motions. You know, once you file motions, then they have to set out a motion schedule. The D.C. local rules, you know, set out what those normal timelines are. And then you, you have to have oral arguments and everything. And it's one of those things that will just naturally push the case out further. Plus, I always believe you don't want to ask for such a long adjournment right in the beginning. You know, you want to get the discovery. You want to, you know, go through and start to litigate the case. That way, when you go back to the judge and say, hey, we need more time, you can show the judge, this is how much discovery we have. This is how far we've gotten into it. These are the problems that we've had. You know, the, the government's not just going to give you all the discovery. There is going to be discovery issues where you want them to give over things that they've withheld. And then you can go to the judge with something solid and say, we need more time because... Mm. of all these things. And then so, it's very difficult for a judge to say go anyway, because that's something that gets reversed. OK, so obviously it's a work in progress. The defense is obviously a work in progress. One of the yeah. main lines of counter argument that we've heard floated in recent days by John Lauro, the president's defense attorney in this or one of two, is this notion that he was simply relying on the advice of his counsel. Um, and in this case, one specific mm -hmm. lawyer in particular, lawyer John Eastman. I wonder if the Trump team does use that argument just to set aside its merits for one minute. Does that not mean that Donald right. Trump has to take the stand? No, not necessarily. Uh, not necessarily. A lot of this can be done through cross-examination and through presentation of other witnesses. Uh, because ultimately, you know, yes, if you're presenting an advice of counsel defense that does bring in an affirmative um, yeah, an affirmative defense where you have to put on evidence, which you could do through calling John Eastman, theoretically. But I would instead look at it from the perspective of the counsel, you know, special counsel has to show beyond a reasonable doubt that he acted with corrupt intent. And if you instead use that element to undermine his knowledge that the that there was no fraud in the election by bringing in all the evidence of the things that you were presented by Rudy Giuliani, by John Eastman, by all these other people, that is a better route to do it. And it's a, it's not quite as narrow as advice of counsel. It's a little bit broader than that. Hmm. But I, I think it's interesting because the person who could probably articulate the best defense or at least the most fulsome defense in this is, of course, the former president. But it doesn't sound like the defense team wants to put him on the stand. Do you think it's a good idea to put Donald Trump on the stand? That would be a decision for them. I will tell you that in my experience, I hardly ever want to put my client on the stand, no matter what type of case it is. Yeah, that's something you only do in very rare circumstances. And after, you know, after I have personally cross-examined that client significantly and significantly harder than what I think that the government will do to make sure that they withstand my cross-examination before I even think about exposing them to the government. Okay, especially maybe if that client is Donald Trump. But we'll, we'll table that for right now. In terms of um, the, the <laughs> I can see problems with that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Bill Barr does not think that the president should be on the stand under any circumstances. And I'm reading between the lines. And maybe you agree with that? I, I think that that's probably a good, uh, a good strategy a good idea. to keep him off the stand.
Um, let me ask you about uh, just a parallel federal case, which is the Mar-a-Lago case. Now, there is a sure. lot of talk for people who have been very January 6th focused. There's some interesting movement in that case this week. And yesterday, Jack Smith, special counsel, asked the judge in that case, Eileen Cannon, for a hearing to discuss whether the kind of the main defense attorney in that case, other than Trump's attorney, Stanley Woodward, is representing too many clients in that case. He represents eight people in the Mar-a-Lago case, including Walt Nauda, Trump's named co-conspirator, and then three witnesses who may be called to testify at trial in the case. He used to represent Yusil Tavares, who is a primary, a star witness at this point. Do you think Stan Woodward has too many clients and may be conflicted here? You know, that is a relatively standard motion uh, in multi-defendant cases. Uh, in, in the Second Circuit, we call it a cursio motion, where it's not necessarily always used to conflict an attorney out, but rather to make sure that if there are conflicts, that the defendant fully understand those conflicts and knowingly waive them. So, for example, um, you know, in this case, Walt will be asked by the federal judge, do you understand that any confidential information that Mr. Woodward got from Mr. Tavares, he will not be able to use that to cross-examine him. And do you still want to be represented by somebody who is you know, essentially handcuffed from doing that portion of the cross-examination? And you know, then it'll be up to, to Walt to make a decision on that. So, you know, the more people you represent, the more, you know, risk that there are, that there is of conflicts like that. Uh, but ultimately, it is the kind of thing that a judge can go through and decide, is this something that's waivable and up to the defendant? Do you want to waive it? What, what would you do? If I were who, if you <laughs> were, Walter Stan. if you were, if you were, if you were Walt Nauta, I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like given, <laughs> it depends, right? But if you, let's say if you were Walt Nauta, would you still want to be represented by Stan Woodward? Well, here's, here's the thing is that while Stan may not be able to cross-examine uh, Ucille, his local counsel can. You know, as long as you have another attorney who's representing you who doesn't have the conflict, then, and I've done this in cases before where you have the one conflicted lawyer that when that uh, witness gets up on the stand, that wit that lawyer just goes and sits behind. Uh, so that is something that certainly it'll be up to Walt as to how much he believes in and trusts Stan and how much of a relationship that they have. And I would think that he probably would be willing to waive that conflict to keep Stan on and just have somebody else conduct certain portions of the trial. Well, especially if Mr. Woodward's legal bills are still being paid by Mr. Trump. We'll table that for another discussion. I got to ask you one last one. In reading this sure. indictment, back to the January 6th indictment, there we know who five of the co-conspirators are. Do you have a theory on who co-conspirator mm -hmm. six is in the, in the January 6th indictment? Uh, you know, I've, I've heard a couple of theories um, mm -hmm. and do you embrace you know, any me, of them? It kind of goes back and f I'm I, I don't want to put all my money on one of them, but I would say between Mike Roman and Boris Epstein, those seem to be the most likely uh, people. Um, and, you know, really, the, I would I would put money a little bit more on Mike Roman simply because it says political consultant, whereas the other ones identify them as a lawyer. And Boris does have a license to practice law. So Boris's CV is the only thing that is keeping Mike Roman as your number one candidate. We'll return to you, Mr. Parlatori, once the uh, co-conspirator six is unmasked. I deeply appreciate your time and thoughts tonight, though. Thanks for joining me. 
All right. Thank you very much. Still ahead, how Trump's 2024 rivals are reacting to today's historic arraignment and what is waiting for Mr. Trump down in Georgia. Unless someone tells me differently, we are we are following our part, our, our normal practices. And so it doesn't matter your status. We, we have mugshots ready for you. We have mugshots ready for you. That is all coming up. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download. We are back for more legal analysis on this historic arraignment day with MSNBC's own Ari Melber. Ari, I was just speaking with the former Trump defense lawyer, Tim Parlatore. Yeah. And of the interesting things he talked about, the thing that really struck me was this notion. He believes the trial, it's a sort of, it's without debate in his eyes that it will a federal trial will take much, much longer than I think most of the public believes it will. And he pegged it at 15 months from now and that that was a reasonable timeline for this trial to begin. Do you think that is wishful thinking on the part of someone who used to be part of Trump's defense team or is is there some accuracy there? Yes, I think it's wishful thinking and a stretch. And I don't know that he's going to get the judge who's the only person who matters to agree on setting that trial date, meaning I don't know that his former colleagues will do that. Uh, I thought it was a very newsworthy interview on a big night like this. Well, thanks. You're welcome. I mean, it's, and, and you raised the points and we heard their perspective. And that's interesting. That said, I don't think everything that, that, he, that he claimed tracks. I was a little bit reminded of in Wedding Crashers, where the guy's giving the toast and it's going left. That would be Trump. Yeah. And then... Tim Parlatore is Vince Vaughn and grabs the mic and says, you know, I think what he's trying to say is, yeah, love is beautiful. Right. Love endures. And it's like, that's not what that guy was saying. Only instead of Vince Vaughn, it's Tim Parlatore. Instead of Tim Parlatore. And so Tim might take that as a, as a litigation compliment because he's doing better than the defendant. And that is what Trump is today as a defendant. So I think what we heard from Parlatore is this Vince Vaughn sort of more warm, polished, almost nothing to see here mood. Yeah. There's a lot to see here because there's damning evidence and there's a lot to see here soon because as we've reported today and tonight, uh, the presiding judge who matters told the magistrate, get them back in here end of the month and I'm ready to go figure out the trial date. And if they raise really good arguments, they might get extra months. Yeah. I don't know that they get extra 15 years, months. A year and a half. I don't know about that. that sounds, but we'll see. Uh, do we have, the, uh, there is another bit that where I asked him whether Donald Trump could and should take the stand. Do we have that piece of sound control room? Let's take a listen to that. Do you think it's a good idea to put Donald Trump on the stand? 
That will be a decision for them. I will tell you that in my experience, I hardly ever want to put my client on the stand, no matter what type of case it is. Yeah, that's something you only do in very rare circumstances. And after, you know, after I have personally cross-examined that client significantly and significantly harder than what I think that the government will do to make sure that they withstand my cross-examination before I even think about exposing them to the government. Yeah, I mean... And and then I I said I brought up the case that Bill Barr said Donald Trump should never take the stand in his own defense. It seems difficult to me, not a person with a law degree, for Trump to make this for his defense team to make the case that he was simply relying on the counsel of John Eastman when he went through with all these suggested plans for overturning the election. It's hard to make that case without Trump himself taking the stand. Parlatory threw cold water on that, said, oh, you could do that. But that seems like a tough defense without the principle. Yeah, I think both things are true. Uh, criminal defendants very rarely take the stand. And when they do is in extreme circumstances. When the trial has gone so left that they think they're losing. Yeah. There have been murder trials where the evidence is so strong that they're, they are saying if nothing changes... We're losing and they put him, him or her on the stand to try to get the jury to sort of empathize in some way. It's really a, what's considered a Hail Mary. Every so often there's someone who is who is somehow so likable in the community that they put him on the stand. And we've seen that. Those are exceptions. And I don't think either of those at this point we can say would happen to Trump. As for this advice of counsel defense, um, it is probably weaker when the counsel in question have all been named as co-conspirators by the government. Right. Right. They're unindicted at this point, And that's a procedural matter. But the government, when they say that, the government is saying, Jack Smith, on Tuesday, that we have the goods on all of these people. Mm -hmm. That's not a small matter. One of them recently worked at the Justice Department, Jeffrey Clark. And so, A, that strengthens the government's case. And B, if if your ace in the hole is they told me to do it, yeah, it would help to have the person the defendant say that. And I don't think he's going to be positioned to say that on the stand. Also, he's just probably a terribly unreliable witness to say nothing of everything else. Ari Melber, thank you, my friend, for playing double, triple duty this evening. Appreciate your time, buddy. When we come back, hot indictment summer, not yet over. An investigation in Georgia is heating up and one prosecutor says she is ready to go and ready to decide if Donald Trump is going to face a fourth set of charges. I took an oath. And that the oath requires that I follow the law, that if someone broke the law in Fulton County, Georgia, um, that I have a duty to prosecute. That's exactly what I plan to do. If you are Donald Trump, three federal indictments, three federal criminal indictments is apparently a hat trick. Something to be celebrated, a sort of leg up on the competition. And he wants more of them. On Truth Social this morning, Mr. Trump wrote, I need one more indictment to ensure my election. That is it. Number four and 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. hey Now, beyond being a re-election strategy, Trump sees these indictments as lucrative fundraising opportunities. There are Trump T-shirts and Trump mugs with a fake Trump mugshot specifically commemorating this very moment in American history. But as the old adage goes, every crisis is a merchandising opportunity. And the former president is not the only one to recognize this. Former Vice President Mike Pence, who is likely the star witness in this case, he also has some new indictment swag for sale. His campaign is selling t-shirts that read, too honest, 
which is a reference to the indictment's allegations that Trump berated Pence for his lawfulness in and around January 6th and complaining that Pence was too honest. So, yes, protect the Constitution, but also make it a crew neck. Other 2024 Republican presidential candidates have not emblazoned their opinions about the indictment onto mugs or sweatshirts. They are apparently still workshopping their positions. Vivek Ramaswamy is taking aim at the Justice Department, and he is calling on the DOJ to tell the truth about Trump's prosecutions. Is this a politicized persecution through prosecution? I certainly believe it is. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is concerned about Hunter Biden, tweeting that there are two different tracks of justice, one for political opponents and another for the son of the current president. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley says she would like to just move on. I didn't rush out with a statement yesterday on Trump's indictment for one simple reason. Like most Americans, I'm tired of commenting on every Trump drama. I've lost track of whether this indictment is the third, fourth or the fifth. She's lost track. And maybe that's because Governor Haley has not discovered Mr. Trump's secret sauce here. Four indictments, after all, ensures your election and five, five indictments. Well, you can just shoot for the moon. Now, we do have new intel about what we might see after potential indictment number four. And that is a Trump mugshot. That is coming up next. Stay with us. As of today, Donald Trump has been arraigned on 78 criminal charges across three different cases. But there is still sort of unbelievably a fourth shoe that may drop in Fulton County, Georgia. Uh, the district attorney there, Fonnie Willis, says she is ready to announce her charging decisions and nothing is going to get in her way of doing that. Have you read it? I have reviewed it, yes. Anything surprise you in there? No. Are you coordinating with the special counsel's office at all? I'm not going to comment on our investigation at this time. How much overlap is there between what you're planning to do and what's in the special counsel's investigation or indictment? I mean, obviously, we're concentrating on Georgia um, and things that impacted Georgia. Does it have any bearing on your investigation at all? I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, does it affect what you're planning to do? No. Okay. Now, Willis has said she will announce any potential indictment before September 1st. And to that end, her office has announced that some roads will be closed around the courthouse beginning August 7th. Joining me now is Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg saw 16 fake Georgia Republican electors gather behind closed doors on December 14th, 2020, which was the day the state's official electors were casting the state's 16 official electoral votes for president. The special counsel's indictment alleges that the Republican electors Greg saw gather behind that door were casting fraudulent ballots for Donald Trump at Trump's direction. And that December 14th meeting has piqued D.A. Willis's interest as well. Uh, Greg, thanks for being here. I know another journalist, I believe, has been subpoenaed by the D.A. to talk about that moment on December 14th. And I'd love to know just when you saw that happening, what did you think was going on behind that door? Well, I was completely surprised because I had actually written a story about the the uh, the elector meetings in Georgia, because of course it was a major deal in Georgia that uh, that that uh, Joe Biden was about to be formally elected by Georgia electors, Democratic electors in Atlanta, and I had called some Republican electors just in case I caught wind that there might be something going on, and several of them said on the record there was no such meeting. So when I was on my way walking up the Capitol steps on the second floor up to the state Senate chambers, 
I was shocked to see some uh, familiar Republican faces. And when I went up to that door, door 216 in the second floor of the state capitol and knocked on the door and looked and said, what's going on in here? Uh, one of the GOP officials, one of the fake electors said, uh, oh, we're just having the educators meeting and kicked me out. And I had to get upstairs. And it wasn't until a few minutes later that I've realized what they were doing. And they were actually uh, holding a fake electors meeting. Yeah, well, the secrecy and, to be honest, the lies that they told you about the the subject of this meeting, what was actually going to pass behind that door, really doesn't, ju- I mean, how do you make, what do you make of that reality that you witnessed and the contention that these fake electors thought they were doing everything above board, that they didn't really realize they were part of any kind of potentially criminal plot? Yeah, now the narrative is they were being transparent and open, but we know at the time they were doing anything but that. You know, they, they had not told us in the media. It wasn't like they sent a press release saying that they're going to be meeting at noon on, on, on December, that December day. Instead, we know from the January 6th commission that they'd actually, the Trump staffers had sent emails to the fake electors asking them to act in complete secrecy and even shield it from Georgia state troopers who were reporting to Governor Brian Kemp. They didn't want the governor knowing about it. Yeah. Well, Greg, I I have to say there is so much renewed interest in exactly what was happening with the fake electors, given the indictment that was handed down earlier this week. Just the the breadth of the plot, the nefarious nature of some of the plot and the fact that this is kind of the the bedrock of the case against Trump is what what these fake electors did. We know that there's some overlap between the federal case that Jack Smith has put together and what we're hearing down in Fulton County from D.A. Willis's office. What is the expectation about when that indictment may come out? We, you know, have this reporting that some of the roads around the courthouse are going to be closed August 7th. Can you give us any insight? What are you hearing? Well, first, you heard from the DA herself just saying it's a separate track. Yet there's still overlap between the federal case and what she's looking at. We know that she's also contact that both federal investigators and her investigation has both contacted Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. We're expecting within weeks this investigation to reach a conclusion. All signs, of course, point to Donald Trump indictment. Uh, we're expecting this. I'm, I'm not expecting it imminently within the next few days, but really within the next two weeks. And the DA has said herself on the record that we will have a decision before Labor Day before September 1st. Greg, is there any sense of trepidation about the overlap between the federal case and the state case here? Because there's certainly a lot of witnesses in common. And traditionally, the federal criminal cases supersede, if you will, a state case. Do you sense that there's going to be any deference to that tradition when it comes to D.A. Willis? You know, when the DA was asked about this a couple of days ago, she joked that Jack Smith wouldn't even recognize her. And, and she uh, she wondered whether he would even be able to pronounce her name right. Uh, so she's going to proceed on her own track. Um, there's no sort of uh, overseer who uh, it gets to determine the guidelines for what cases go when. Uh, I'm not sure, um, you know, how the court scheduling could conflict with uh, a federal case and a, and a, and a Georgia case. Uh, we know there'll be all sorts of pretrial litigation anyway. But Fannie Willis has said over and over again that she's determined to move forward and she's she's conducting her own independent investigation separate from the feds. Well, just to be clear, I was speaking with um, Tish James, oh, now a month ago, and she said very plainly, if the federal case comes out in August, then I will adjourn, Alvin Bragg will adjourn, and Fannie Willis. We're going to adjourn our cases in deference to the federal case. But it does not sound like that memo got to D.A. Willis's desk. Is that an accurate assessment? 
Yeah, and we asked uh, her aides around that same time if that was the, if that was actually the case, uh, because it looked like the Georgia case would be in, indefinitely delayed. And we were given the signal, nope, <laughs> they're going to move forward. And this is, remember, this has been going on for years now, and the special grand jury met for months. Uh, I don't think her timeline is going to be affected by anyone else's timeline. Well, I mean, it is going to be really interesting to see how these indictments intersect with one another and overlap. Greg Bluestein from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, witness to the fake electors meeting on December 14th of 2020, a man with much knowledge. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you. That is our show for this evening. 